BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode. And before we start this episode, I want to encourage all our listeners to please subscribe and rate our channel. We definitely appreciate that. Also, feel free to give us feedback. Like I said, all three of those things, we definitely appreciate it. I just want to start the show off and let you guys know. And um, here's another episode. I hope you all enjoy it. On the way to the top floor. I ain't selling out, though, but I'm on the way. Got a lot of real, Mr. Motivate. Hold all the moves, I'm going to put in play. On the way. Motivation for all the real on the way, on the way, to the big check, you ain't know I'm up next when I'm on the way, you ain't take risks cause you too afraid, I'ma just eat till I'm overweight, on the way, on the way. What's up everybody, welcome to another episode of the Millionaire Mindsets Podcast, I am your host Xavier Millison here with my co-host Deanna Kent. Hey, everybody. And today we have a, this is going to be another super, super valuable episode. We have a super dope guest and she's doing great things for our body home to the show because I love what she's doing. And her name is Courtney. She's an investment expert. She uh, teaches people how to get started in, with stock investing. She's a attorney and a former stockbroker. And we're super excited to have her on the show today. So welcome to the show, Courtney. Glad you're here. All right. For <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. And, uh, just to start off, uh, the first question we always ask our guests is, so what was the start? What got you into all the things you're doing now? Um. Well, I tell people, like, sometimes everything makes sense, like, looking backwards. So when I got out of, like, it kind of started a long time ago when I graduated from um, undergrad. So I was a philosophy major and my thoughts and my hopes were to go straight to law school. Like that's what I was going to do. And I was like, uh, you know, my, my philosophy program was like number two in the nation. It was really vigorous. And I was like, I can't do any more school right now. So my parents were like, that's great. You need to find a job. And I was like, you know what, you're right. <laughs> um, but I had a philosophy degree. So what was I going to do with a philosophy degree? So I was just putting my resume out there. I had some retail experience and I got a hit from American Express Financial Advisors. And they were like, do you want to be a financial advisor? And I was like, sure, I'll be a financial <laughs> advisor. 
I don't know what that is. And they were like, you have to take these exams. And I'm like, okay, I'll take the exam. I'm a good t- test taker. So I had to take the Series 7, which is the uh, General Securities Advisor or Representative exam, which basically makes you a stockbroker. Right. And then I had to take exam that allowed me to uh, charge for my advice, which was Series 66. Then I had Life Accident Health, and that kind of was like my thing. I was a financial advisor for like all of eight months, and I was like, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. I was like, 21 I didn't have like I was working all the time like we were supposed to work like 60 hours a week I was getting paid $18,000 a week and it was just terrible and I was like how am I supposed to live this way so I decided like one day I just up and quit I was just like I'm not doing this my dad was like if you my parents were like if you're that unhappy you know just quit and we'll figure it out so I ended up working at like Walmart like I actually worked at Sam's Club but it's a part of Walmart so Mm -hmm. I ended up working there parts I kind of, and then I ended up getting into banking and then I was able to use my licenses there. So I was like, okay, well, this is a little bit more comfortable. It was a lot more comfortable actually. And I was like, okay, this is cool. And then I decided to move back to Philly because I was work. I was living in Pittsburgh, moved back to Philly, ended up working with Merrill Lynch. And that's kind of mm. where my career took off. Mm. I was, um, I did 401k. I did high net worth advising. And so my average client that I was um, working with financial advisors was about $3 million. So that's the portfolios that I was dealing with. Then the market crashed. Mm. So I was like, hanging out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> living my life. But we actually knew, like really bad. Like we went from steak dinners to like snack. So, wow. you know, everything went bad very, very quickly. So I was laid off in March of 09 and then I decided, okay, fine. It's, it's time to go to law school. Um, so I went to law school and I ended up getting into oil and gas. And then if you know anything about the oil and gas industry, it blew up and then it kind of like fell apart. So I was like, okay, what are we going to do now? So I ended up working in tax. So I got my LLM in taxation and I've been doing that. Um, I've been doing, I've been doing real estate tax since, I don't know, for the last like almost three years or so. So I've been doing some sort of like taxation enforcement, um, basically almost since I've been an attorney. But when I was working in oil and gas, I hated my job. And I was kind of like, I needed some kind of creative outlet. So I started the blog. I started the IB Investor. So I mean, I know you're like, oh my gosh, that's a really long way to get <laughs> no, to like, you, I, like, <laughs> you go yeah. ahead, you go ahead. <laughs> but that's like what happened. I ended up kind of going all the way around to kind of get where I was. So I used like my legal experience. I used my experience as a financial advisor and being in the financial world to kind of start my blog because all my friends were asking me the same questions over and over again. Like they were in their parts where they were transitioning out of out of their jobs. They were starting to have families and getting houses. And it was kind of like all this stuff going on. And they're like, Courtney, I need help with this. Courtney, I need help with that. Courtney, Courtney, I was like, hey, 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 hey. I need to bill hours because if I don't bill, I have problems. I can't be on the phone with you walking you through a rollover. But what I can do is I can, like, give you kind of some step-by-steps and and a blog form so you can share it with others. Because if you have the question and my other girlfriend had the question and she and her friend had the question, there's going to be way more people that I can touch if I just put it on a blog and you guys can share it around. So that's how everything started. And so that was five years ago. So here we are about two years ago, about about two years ago. Um, the people that I was working with, like people who read my blog, people who just followed me were like, Courtney, what do you think about investing in cannabis? And I was like, uh, it's risky. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I didn't really have an opinion. But everybody kept asking me about that. So I said, you know, and I tell people when you have a business, like you have to really pay attention to what your clients and your customers are asking for. 
because that's what they're going to buy. Right. So I said, okay, well, let me go figure out some cannabis. I, I was like, hold my beer. <laughs> let me figure out what's going on with cannabis, and I'll get back to you. So I started, like, my first cannabis class. And then from there, like, the rest is history. Like, I've been all over the nation speaking about investing in cannabis because, mm. like, when I jump something and I teach like I jump in and jump in like so that's kind of where we are now and I mean I teach about um investing in stocks like overall I do like a stocks one-on-one class I teach about investing in IPOs because they're hot like Uber's gonna IPO next week next right. Friday yep. Friday um Lyft just IPO yep. Zoom we're on right now IPO like the same day Lyft did or was it no no I Zoom think- and Pinterest IPO'd on the same day and then Lyft IPO like two weeks before them. Mm-hmm. So it's just been crazy, crazy, crazy. So I kind of like just whatever people are talking about, that's kind of what I want to talk about and educate about because there's not a lot of information out there. Wow. So yeah, that's you, you, yeah, that's a you went Good over background. a lot of stuff in back. And I'm like, man, I want to I want to touch on this, I want to touch on this. And like now I don't even know where to start no more because it's a lot that I want to touch on what you were saying. And but and I'm glad like that you spoke on the crash because I love talking to people that went through the the, the recession because mm-hmm. I'm only 25 and when I when it happened I was a fret like eighth grade a freshman and it was you know I didn't really understand it I didn't really experience it because I wasn't the breadwinner of my family or nothing like that so I didn't have like a burden or anything but talking to people that experienced it just to, just to get insight and different perspectives because I know it'll happen again in my lifetime so I just like learning and like just knowing things to look out for so that's very interesting. And uh, another uh, another thing I want to ask you about, like this is kind of going towards like the beginning, really is like, did you come from a family where like your parents was like financially literate? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of people think like to get money or do anything like good or successful, especially on the financial tip, you have to come from it. And like, I'm a prime example that you don't, and I'm that's the reason why I'm asking that question. So, no, I think it's a great question to ask. I don't think we talk about it enough about people who we kind of think are on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, full of fair disclosure, you know, I grew up I grew up in, a, like, a really solid middle-class household. My mom was a nurse. Uh, my dad, you know, was an executive at McDonald's at one point, And mm. then he ended up kind of you know, being an entrepreneur on his own. Mm. But one thing between my parents is that, and I talk about this in my blog, so um, my mom was very much a saver and my dad's a spender mm-hmm. so at some point when my parents um my parents divorced um and it just kind of caused everything to go left it wasn't anything that went bad per se but it wasn't a great thing so my um my mom ended up um once she kind of got in over her head in terms of you know bills and kind of keeping up and all these other things because she kept the house you know she ended up filed for chapter 13 bankruptcy and I talk about it in the blog because we I had to get her. She ended up, um, she was filing for bankruptcy probably in her, like, mid-50s. And wow. she's looking at her 65, and she's like, I don't even know how to do this. So, you know, thankfully, I had the experience for retirement to kind of get her up to speed. So I was able to get her, you know, through her Chapter 13 bankruptcy plan. And if you know anything, so with Chapter, you have a Chapter 13 and a Chapter 7. So most people are very familiar with Chapter 7, which mm-hmm. basically kind of erases whatever debt you have and right. you kind of get a start. But in Chapter 13, it's what's called like a reorganization. So it takes all of your old bills and kind of basically settles them out. So you still have, a, and you have a payment 
mm-hmm. every month. And one of the contingencies of the chapter 13 is that you have to stay current in all of your other obligations. Like you can't, so you have this kind of back obligation that you're dealing with, but then you have to pay, pay it forward. So my mom had, um, her bankruptcy payment was, um, $865 a month. And then she had a mortgage of $1,200. Mm. So already off top, before you even like do anything, your $2,000 is going out of your house every single month. And so that's kind of where we were starting. Like our zero wasn't zero. Our zero was 2000. So I had to get her through her bankruptcy and that was four and a half years. And I got her done. I'm um, actually, it's usually supposed to be five. I got her done. I got her done early in four and a half years. And then from there, I was like, okay, our next move is we're going to get this house paid off. So we got the house paid off. And then as we were paying down a house, I was contributing more and more to her 401k. And I was maxing her out every year. Now, back when I was maxing her out, she's been retired for about two years. Um, and every year, the IRS kind of increases the amount that can be contributed to the 401k. So at one point, I think it was like maybe 16000 17000 So that's what we were putting away every single year. She was also getting her match, and then the market was rocking and rolling. So we had a really good opportunity to really kind of catch up. Now, not that was—I I mean, looking back on it, it's totally like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's kind of like everything aligned that it worked out well. Like she had me; we were able to kind of get her mm. bankruptcy under control. We were able to really just focus. And she, like I said, she's a saver, so she's not a huge spender. So it was really easy to kind of say, "Okay, this is the money you're working with this month. You know, go." be fruitful and prosper on that amount and we'll work on everything. Mm. So again, so to answer your question in a long, in the long way is that I came from a really good background, but I came from a, a family that like didn't, wasn't on the same page with money. And we ended up having like money problems. So again, like my, um, like I said, my mom, no, my mom filed for bankruptcy. Like, so she had a reorg and she had to save the house, but it was still like, it wasn't easy. If that makes sense. All of that happened after I went to college. So it was, it wasn't something that I was affected with, like going through high school or things like that. But, um, you know, I was always cognizant about money. I was not like, I wasn't a kid that was like, Hey, I want these new sneakers. Hey, I I wasn't that person. Mm. Um, and I always worked like I was a person that was like, okay, like I want my own money to kind of do what I want with it. So I don't have to ask. So that was my thing. So I had a job during the summer. And like at some point during the summer, I was working two jobs. I would work like my nine to five and then I would work at Bloomingdale's at night. It's like, so I don't play like those are the games <laughs> I wasn't playing. <laughs> but again, you know, it's, it's everything is different. So, I mean, if everybody, if somebody's like, oh, you're an investor, like were you investing at home? And I wasn't like we saved and I kind of understood the idea of saving, but it wasn't anything to say, oh, Um, I'm going to make my money increase. And I think that's the biggest thing that we need to learn in our, in our households is that we can't just exchange dollars for hours. We can't just keep saving Mm -hmm. because that pretty much leaves you at zero. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I save and I exchange dollars for hours, but I don't, I'm not getting anything more than what I put into it more or less. something where I'm not kind of doing that whole kind of, you know, switching this for that and, and kind of like, I don't know, doing money gymnastics. Right. So, you know, investing allows you to kind of expand what you have in your pocket. Mm. You have a very, very interesting story, <laughs> like seriously, but it's dope at the same time because I'm pretty sure that's that's why you, who you are today, because you they had a lot of stuff that you went through and overcame. So, but going into that, so... 
Man, I got a lot of, like, I got a lot of stuff I want to touch on now. It's like, I don't even know where really to start. So it's like, I see you on, you want to say something? No, you oh, I see on your page, you uh, talk about the three types of incomes a lot. And I, and I really love that because I know, like, I try to usually start off with the basics because I don't assume that everybody knows, like, what's going on. Mm-hmm. So do you mind, do you mind going over the three different types of incomes? Okay, so you have earned income, passive income, and investment income. So those are the three types. So earned, we kind of like, everybody knows that that's your W-2 income, your 1099 income, that's you exchanging dollars for hours. Yeah. And then you have your passive income, so if you're a landlord or something like that, then you are pretty much, um, that's your passive. So I don't, I can sit in my house, uh, somebody, I was watching a YouTube uh, video and a guy was saying I was sitting in my house at seven o'clock at night and my doorbell rang and somebody handed me rent for the month and it was like so basically in that like minute I made seven hundred dollars so that's kind of like the passive income there wasn't anything you did other than owning a um owning a place or we'll call it you know owning an apartment building and somebody was actually paying you rent there wasn't anything did beyond that now then you have investment income and that's is income that you have coming from your investments and so in in the case of like looking beyond the passive you're saying okay i have stocks i have mutual funds i have bonds or i have a property that i sold that's going to be your investment income because the whole purpose of you having the property was the purpose of investing mm-hmm. so it's kind of like all those different kind of uh types of income really make a difference because you're earned income and your passive income depending on how you get it that may be taxed at your what we call your ordinary income rate but your investment income as long as you hold it longer than a year is going to be um, taxed at what we call the more favorable capital gains rate Mm -hmm. which is going to be significantly lower than your ordinary income rate which is that and that's very interesting because i often tell people to if you if you buy stocks to try to hold it for longer if you are hold if you into holding Try to hold it for longer than a year because that tax, if it's lower than a year, it's going to be much higher than if it was longer than a year. Mm-hmm. So that's that's very interesting that you said that. And uh, you want to ask something? You like going to say something? I was going to go into another topic. Yeah, do, your, <laughs> do, your, do your thing. But, do your thing. Um, just to leave one thing, though, how you describe the three types of incomes for us. The number one thing to remember is that there are these different types of income and you don't have to limit yourself to just one. So when you're trying to build wealth for yourself and your family, you can't always have more than one type of income and have multiple streams of income coming in. But going into my next question, so I see you talk a lot about the two different retirement plans. So I just wanted you to give us like your um, take on both and what do you think is the better retirement plan? In terms of like 401ks. Okay, so... Are you pro? I'm sorry? Are you like like pro 401k IRA? So they both have different um, implications, if that makes sense. So I think, and not everybody has the ability to use an IRA either. And I think that's something that people get lost in the sauce with. Mm. So for example, with your 401k, your 401ks are protected by what's called ERISA, which is the employment, employee retirement, income savings, something, whatever. And it was established in 1974. So that's what it's covered under. But the 401k actually didn't even start until like the early 80s. But that's another story for like a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, but with the 401k, you can contribute more. 401k, 403b, 403b. Um, TSP, which is um, the federal um, government's uh, savings uh, 
savings plan or retirement plan. You have you can contribute a lot more. So right now in 2019, you can contribute nineteen thousand dollars to a 401k, 403b. Well, we'll call it the employer savings plans because otherwise we'll be naming them forever. So that's what you contribute there. But on an IRA, which is an individual retirement um, account. That the most you can contribute to that is six thousand dollars. So if you're looking to really maximize um, how much you can put away, you know the mo- you can put more into your employee your employee savings account. So that's kind of like one big thing. And then also with your employee savings account, they actually some of them um, under ERISA get better protections than what an IRA is. Um, so IRA, if you basically unless you roll it over, if you're basically contributing money out of your pocket and putting into an IRA. It's called a contributory IRA, and California is funky. So California, um, they basically calculate if a creditor wants to come out after your IRA, they can, and they calculate how much you need to retire, and anything over that amount is going to be subject to creditors. Mm. But they can't do that with with a four hundred one k. Like a four hundred one k is completely protected by the federal government's law, so it's called with preemption. So. The states can't encroach on the federal government, if that makes sense. So they're like, oh, no, 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 you're preempted. So 401ks get this full protection. That whole calculation that California does doesn't apply with a 401k. So I think it's really important to understand that. But a lot of people are saying, well, I like an IRA because I get a lot more flexibility in terms of what I can um, invest in. But you can still contribute to a 401k and then roll it over. But you keep protections of the 401k because it's basically tagged where the money came from. Mm -hmm. Okay. So So there's a couple. Oh, you can go first. No, no, no. What was your question? So um, I was going to say, so discussing the 401k and the Roth IRA, um, do you think those should be your number one like um, plan for income for when you retire? Or do you think you should have a more diversified portfolio as far as like stocks and all the other stuff? So you should definitely have like what we call like tax advantage accounts and your non-tax advantage accounts. Um, because again, you know, when you're getting, when the IRS gives you a tax advantage, they're saying, listen, you have these certain things that you have to do or can't do. Um, so when you have um, 401k, you're doing what we call a like tax deferred, um, you're basically putting money away. It's not going to be taxed now, but it's going to be taxed later. And then at the age of 70 and a half, you have to start taking money out of that account, even if you don't need it. You mm-hmm. have to, you're required, it's called a, a, a RMD, a required minimum distribution. But on the other side, if I have properties, I have stocks that aren't in a 401k that are just in what we call a regular account, I don't have to do anything with it. Like, I'm not going to be penalized or told to take money out or not. But anytime the government's saying, listen, we gave you this whole opportunity for you not to get taxed on this money, run me that money. Um, run me that at 70 and a half. Um, and they, so again, it's kind of like, it's a, it's, it's a balancing act. So it's kind of like how we talk about diversifying your streams of income. And diversifying your um, your types of income or your types of um, income that you have coming in, um, you also should diversify kind of your tax implications. So you have your four hundred one k or whatever uh, retirement plan you have that's going to be tax deferred. But then you have a Roth, which can be a four hundred one k or IRA. You have Roth money that, if you, as long as you don't you follow the rules, which is you're um, over the age of fifty nine and a half, and the account's been open for five years, that money comes out tax free. 
But then also, if you have what we call just your regular taxable, um, your regular taxable investments, which is your real estate, regular stock that you have maybe in Robinhood, you don't, you're not forced to do anything with it, and you can allow that money to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Now, if I pass away and I have stocks, and I say I bought Google when Google's just IPO'd at a hundred dollars a share, and now it's like seventeen hundred dollars a share, and something happens to me, um, normally. Um, what happens with, with my kids, they'll get that $1,700. So basically, normally if I sold it, I would have to take $1,600 and take that in terms of, I would be taxed on $1,600. But if my kids take it and something happens to me, I pass away, my kids will get that $1,700 and that tax on that $1,600 basically goes away. And that's called stepped up basis. And that's like a gym of the tax code. But mm-hmm. that only happens in those accounts that are not tax deferred or tax advantaged. So there's just so many ways for you to play this game. This mm-hmm. game will blow your mind. Mm-hmm. If you know, I tell people you have to learn the rules of the game and play it better than anyone else. So a lot of people get really excited about 401ks and all the other stuff, but that's good. But you also need to have some other stuff on the other side because then you can take advantage or your kids can take advantage of what we call step to basis. And basically that's how people are able to kind of really create that generational wealth. Mm, I agree. I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting back into the, the, the cannabis stocks, like, from your perspective, why do you feel like uh, the cannabis stocks that is something that everybody, well, not everybody, that you that you think a lot of people should be getting involved in? Well, I think it's it's a two-part thing. It's, for me, being a, an African-American woman, um, being, you know, being in a place where, you know, the war on drugs, like, really happened, mm-hmm. and it was happening to people that look and people around me, um, and now I see who don't look like me, you know, predominantly white males taking advantage of this kind of new trend that cannabis is now legal, yeah. I'm just like, nah, I'm not going to just let that happen without people who look like me being able to take advantage of it also. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the political side of it or the social side of it. But the other problem is, is that what they've done is they've created a structure that makes it very hard for people of color to get in, um, partially because they're saying anybody who has a record can't get in at all. But you just got finished, you know, decimating our communities over the last no. 20, 30, 25 to 30 years, basically giving us a record for breathing, and now we can't get in. But then also, on the other side, now we're sitting there and we're saying, okay, I don't have a record, but I don't have the half million dollars that you require for me to have to get started in this business. Looking at the stock market and looking at cannabis stocks is pretty much the, the lowest barrier of entry to get into the market, to get into the cannabis industry. So that's why I really, really like it, and I like kind of advocating it because i mean you can just be a regular person and have ownership in a cannabis company that's killing it um but also like there's a lot of landmines out in the cannabis world too so there's that too so Mm -hmm. i think it's really important to have the conversation have the conversations in the open and also educate so we make sure that we as best as we can avoid the landmines like anytime you invest in a stock market you have the ability to lose whatever you invest in but you kind of educate yourself you reduce that that um that likelihood you don't eliminate it but you reduce it greatly hmm. and i and i i really love everything you just said and especially especially the part where you saying pretty much they decimated our communities charged us with all this stuff and then they're like y'all can't get into this industry now mm-hmm. and i and like me this i'm gonna get real because you know I, I i keep it real i say exactly how i feel <laughs> and like i feel like 
and it's probably like like going off topic, but this like I feel like uh, I feel like they play, they 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 strategize everything out. I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure they knew 30 years ago that this was part of the plan. Like this is what we gonna do, so they can't get infiltrated. I could be like I said, I could be wrong. I don't know, but I, I look at it as like in this in life, everything is chess for real. So we really we really got to be strategizing our moves. Not just thinking one year ahead, six months ahead, but we really got to be thinking long term. You know, that's really like a cliche now where everybody say I'm thinking long term. But we, especially in our community, we really, we really, really, really got to be thinking long term. Because like you said, so many, it's so many of us that should be involved in this industry, that should be able to put our dollars in this industry, but can't because they got charged with BS crimes or whatever. So it's really just a crazy game, but that's why we really got to be ahead of the curve and be thinking ahead. So I like I like that you said that definitely. And uh, so I, there you go. go. Add on to that for a second. So I can't say that they when they started prohibition of cannabis in 1970 when they made it official official under the Controlled Substances Act did they say well we're going to legalize this <laughs> as a point and we're basically going to keep people out. But I will tell you that the Nixon advisors who it who the Nixon administration put um, the CSA and um, the Controlled Substances Act in play, they specifically said, we can't make it illegal to be black. We cannot make it illegal to be against the war, which at the time was the Vietnam War. But what we can do is criminalize those things that we associate them with, and then mm. we can prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Mm. That's what the move was. Mm. So, so yeah, I, I mean, so were they thinking we're we're going to legalize this at some point. We're basically going to keep them out of the game. I don't think it was that kind of far-reaching or far, okay. thought, far thought out. But, no, they were certainly looking to target us with the law. And they were certainly look, looking to put us not only in jail but under the jail and basically destroy our community. So, please understand, you were definitely on the right track. And it's definitely something that we need to talk about. Because the Nixon administration came out in the 90s after all the dust settled. It was like, yeah, you know, we kind of did that. Our bad. And no one actually worked and said, well, if that's what you actually did and that's what your intent was, then we need to do things in the 90s to kind of start eradicating what system this created. But nobody really cared because honestly, and I, I'm, I'm still a Kanye fan. I know Kanye is like on the outs with us, yeah. but I love, I'm still a Kanye fan because in 2000 and what, four, in 2005 with Katrina, he was like, George Bush doesn't care about black people. But honestly, they don't care about black people. That's it. That's it. That's that. And and that's just a, something that you can't. You can't. I don't even think you could argue that because you could say you could say, well, this person said this, this person said that. I don't care what nobody say. I judge people by their actions. I watch what you do. You can say whatever the hell you want to say to me, but if your actions say otherwise, I'm gonna judge like that. And based on all the things and just history, I ain't gonna go into no deep history lesson or nothing. Y'all know what's going on, but you see what's going on. I mean. What other conclusion are you supposed to come to? Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. But you going to whine about it or boss up. But uh, another question I wanted to ask, getting into to, to stocks again, was penny stocks. And I want the question I wanted to ask are, like, are you a fan of penny stocks? Because I know a lot of people that they always come to me and say, I want to get started in stocks. But, oh, I'm going to invest in penny stocks because it's so cheap. I know I could buy a whole lot. And then if it pop, I can make a lot of money. So what, what, what do you think about that? So I describe 
describe uh, penny stocks as like the manager special. I don't know if you've ever been <laughs> to the where you're like, yo, this really good cut of meat is like 90% off. <laughs> crazy. But yo, you better make that meat that night. <laughs> You'll be throwing it out the next day because it's about to go bad. Mm. And the thing is that it's more likely for a penny stock to remain a penny stock and go to zero than it is for it to pop. So a lot of people kind of search out that cheap stuff with the egg. It's kind of like they use penny stocks to basically make the stock market into the lottery. Mm. Like, well, if I play these numbers right, I'm going to hit it big. And right. it's like, eh, you know, you can't, and I tell people all the time, you can get rich slow. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really okay. And to kind of like go back a little bit more into the marijuana to give you an example is that, you know, the marijuana investing is very much the long game. I mean, we can look at like Corona, like Constellation Brands. We can look at all of these companies, um, Michelob, Diego, mm-hmm. all these like um, alcohol companies that uh, 70 years ago, alcohol was prohibited. You know, there was pro- there was prohibition. And now you can look at their, their balance sheets and they're flush with cash. Mm-hmm. But that was 70 years ago so again you know it was prohibited 70 years ago so again i want people to look at this as what we were looking at say just coming out of prohibition in the 30s like i don't and and, you know now we're like oh two generations later we're like yo you know if i had some some constellation brands or whoever it was you know 70 years ago i'd be like my family would be well set um so I want people to look at cannabis like that. I want people to look at the long game. I want people to really mm. focus on the long term. I want you just to give me lip service. Like, yeah, I'm thinking about the long term. And the next thing I know, you know, instead of like investing money in the stock market, you go and bought a new bed. Right. Uh, so I want, I want people to really, and I'm not like telling people that not to buy a bed. I have a bed, but I tell you right <laughs> now, if I had but again, I would not. And I'm trying to get rid of it right now. But um, because it's expensive to maintain. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's extremely expensive. Like, I pay every time I go to the dealership, like, they're waving and high fiving and saying, And it's not just because, you know, that's their service level. It's like, they know I'm about to drop, you know, a whole stack or mm-hmm. more. And that's a mortgage payment. Now, I don't have a mortgage, thankfully. But again, you know, that's a mortgage payment that I'm paying on a depreciating asset. Yep. So, you know, just to uh, just to maintain it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's still going to depreciate. Like, right. uh, you know, um, but I tell people, get what you want. I think I hope everybody gets what they want. So they realize that, you know, in life. So they realize some of the stuff that they wanted wasn't it. Like some of this material stuff isn't it, but you have to experience it first to say, you know what, I'm good off of that. So I don't know if we've looked at kind of some of the hip hop um, artists, you know, that been in the game. You look at Jay-Z, you can look at Jay-Z under Hard Not Life and all that. You know, he had the, ja- he had the chains, he yep. had the mm-hmm. yep. he was awesome, and he didn't really have that much money. And now you look at him now, and, you know, he's kind of dressed down. He doesn't really have that that he might have some really expensive stuff on, but it's not very flashy. And it's it's a function of maturity and understanding that the, the brand new Lex and the change wasn't it. You know, mm. it's just kind of, but it's an evolution. And I tell people all the time when I've seen like the memes um, about the person, you know, this is a millionaire, this person is broke, and it kind of shows the person that's broke has like a, you know, a Gucci belt. Out- a Gucci belt has this really expensive coat on and all this. I'm like, but it's an evolution and you have to mm-hmm. allow people 
who evolve, you know, and some people never evolve. And I tell people when I was working with um, clients, my average client was $3 million. So they, they were high net, they were considered mm-hmm. high net worth. Mm-hmm. And some of them will come in, you know, and they look like they were worth $3 million. And then other people come in and it's like, Ooh, did you bathe? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's a conversation about becoming yourself and not allowing the money to become you or vice versa or how you want to do it. Um, but I tell people just to kind of like live your own process, allow it to be it, like be the long game, like treat yourself every so often because if you grind it out and, you, and you know, African-Americans, unfortunately, we have a shorter lifespan than most, especially mm-hmm. black men. I mean, we just lost John Singleton mm-hmm. the other day yep. and he was one. So again, I don't want you like just to completely deprive yourself with the hope or the expectation that at some point you'll be able to, you know, bear, you know, bear the fruit from it. But like, you know, be mindful. Like I tell people, have a little bit of tricking money, but put the rest of the money away. Trick mm, a little bit true. and then put some away. And then you kind of feel like, okay, I at least feel like I got something for my hard work. Mm. And but I still, you know, have kind of kept my eye on the prize. So I've gotten this Louis Vuitton bag um, for twelve hundred dollars, but at the end of the day, you know, I have ten thousand dollars away somewhere else. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or I got some assets. Yeah, I, man, I, I I love that because that's exactly how we feel, and that's exactly how we live. Like we really don't do too much as far as like we pretty much save the majority of our money and just chill. But every once and again, we might go on a trip or we might buy something nice. But it's like every now and then. It's not like on a consistent consistent basis like that. Yep. So I definitely I definitely understand what you're saying. And uh, another another question I had was about uh, cannabis stocks. Is if you if you uh, okay with this? Do you feel, do you want, can you name a, not stocks that you think people should like put their money into, but something that stocks that people should be looking out for as far as cannabis stocks should be looking out for. It. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, there's a couple. There's a couple that I look at. Um, and, like, pretty much I'll talk about the ones that most people don't know about. Okay. So, we know Shopify. So, Shopify is kind of like a e-commerce site. Nobody really thinks about them as a cannabis company. Mm. But check it out. Um, Shopify is a Canadian company. And they um, – so, let me back up. So, Canada, they have their provinces. So, basically, think about them as their states. Their provinces run their marijuana business because – uh, Canada uh, made recreational marijuana legal in October 2018. But so basically, but it's run by the state. So the amazing thing is, is that the state has their e-commerce websites and they're all run by Shopify. I think like over half of them are run by Shopify. Mm. And they, the day that cannabis went live, like was able to be purchased for recreational use, they were processing, I think, like a thousand transactions a minute and did not have any outages. So that tells you the strength of their platform. So I was like, okay, Shopify, I see you. I see what your platform is and I see how you're going to basically show everybody else how it's done. Mm-hmm. So I think Shopify is a good company to look at. But also, generally, before I kind of talk about anything else, is that honestly, the market is very much overvalued. I don't know when the, if people are like, when do you think the recession is going to be? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I think it's really important to look at companies individually and say, am I willing to pay this amount for this company? Am I willing to pay, like, for example, I think Google may be $1,700 or so. Um, or whatever it is right now, but am I willing to pay $1,700 for one share or I could pay 
maybe a hundred dollars for another company and still have money to still play around with. I can buy 10 shares and still have $700 left over to buy something else. So I tell people just to kind of really put that stuff in perspective because people are like, Oh, it's super expensive. I should buy it. No, it's a strong possibility. It's going to fall. It's going to fall or the, the price is going to come down. So I tell people at least put it on your watch list. If you've done your research, you understand the way the company works, then put it on your watch list. So when the number becomes something closer to what you want, then you can go and buy it. Like mm-hmm. a couple of years, maybe about two years ago, I was looking at Amazon and Amazon was just starting to hit a thousand dollars. And I was like, Oh no, Amazon, I'm not fooling with you like that. I don't want to pay a thousand dollars for your shares, but I have you on my radar. So as soon as I, I had on my radar, I had on my watch list. So as soon as it dropped below a thousand dollars, I think I got in at like nine twenty three. I got in at nine twenty three. I felt comfortable at nine twenty three. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to buy over a thousand dollars, so I already knew. But now it's like nineteen hundred dollars. So I, you know, I'm up a thousand dollars per share. But again, it's about kind of putting yourself in a position to say, like when even when you go shopping, you might see a coat or something that you really really like, and you see that full price, and you're like, hmm. I like it, but I'm not trying to pay full price for it. But let me keep my eye on it. So when I come back into the store and I see it's on sale, I know if I'm going to buy it or not. So kind of same thing with stocks. So to give you some other ideas um, in terms of uh, companies that I'm, I'm taking a look at that I'm really interested in, um, I'm looking at there's a new cannabis ETF, which is called YOLO, which is Y-O-L-O. Mm. Um, it just, it just came out, I think, about two Thursdays ago, um, and it's an actively managed ETF. So actively managed means you actually have a investment manager picking the, the stocks to have in the, um, the ETF. And the ETF is an exchange-traded funds, so basically it's a basket of stocks. So it's not just one stock, but it trades on the stock exchange like a stock. So kind of think about it, getting the best of both worlds of getting a stock that trades and you know how much it's worth at any point in the trading day, which is from 9.30 to 4.00. But you have the diversification of a mutual fund. So that's kind of what an ETF is. So I was looking at YOLO and I'm like, okay, YOLO, I see you. So I thought that was really interesting because it's the first actively managed cannabis fund of its kind in the United States. So I thought that was pretty dope. So looking at Shopify, looking at YOLO, and um, let me think what else. Um, there's, there's plenty of them out there. Um, um, I'm looking at some of the United States companies. Um, specifically, I'm looking at Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web, I think, is a really good company, and it's. But I'm I'm still concerned and shaky about their process in the United States. So Charlotte's Web is a hemp-based company, and hemp industrial hemp was just legalized in the United States in December under the 2018 Farm Bill. So just as a general overview of cannabis, there's kind of two sides of it, at least under the law. Under the law, you have industrial hemp, which is under 0.3% of THC, and then you have what's considered marijuana, which is 0.3, over 0.3% of THC. So industrial hemp, when you think about hemp, think about rope, think about sales, think about what's even called hempcrete, like, so it's like concrete, but made out of hemp. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of different purposes, but it was it was actually not able to be um, grown in the United States until 2014 when they did a pilot program under President Obama. And then recently under 2000, in 2018, President Trump legal uh, signed into law the farm bill was completely legalized hemp. So CBD is what come, is what people are talking about when they talk about mm-hmm. when they talk about hemp and ideas like what's going on with hemp. 
um, CBD is the big thing. But I give you all that background to say Charlotte's Web is a CBD company, and that's all that they provide to the market. So now all the problems that we see with you know United States cannabis companies or marijuana companies, they don't have those problems anymore because now it's legalized in the United States. So I like looking at those types of companies that um, have the exposure to the industry, but not necessarily the problems associated with the industry. Because a regular cannabis company, if they're doing medical marijuana or even recreational marijuana in the few states that offer it, they can't take regular tax deductions because of rule 280e um they don't have regular banking available to them because uh banks can be considered part of um, aiding and betting a crime they can be considered part of a, any, um, a money laundering scheme because they're allowing a, a known um illegal enterprise to deposit into their bank like there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in this kind of like um quasi-legal environment mm-hmm. so um, so I like kind of things that are in the environment, but not necessarily getting into a place where it's touching the illegal plant. Um, so like I said, you know, chop five, looking at YOLO. I'm not really sure what YOLO is going to do, but I really like the concept. And then Charlotte's Web looking at that kind of taking the hemp play and actually putting it to market. So those are the three things I'm really loving right now. Um, there's some other things like I really like Canopy Growth. Um, that's kind of like basically mm-hmm. the Walmart of cannabis companies but i do think it's a little bit overvalued i think everybody's really excited and i think mm-hmm. that excitement has really pumped up the stock's price um artificially um so i'm just kind of a little concerned about that but they are making some really good moves because they are coming into the united states and they're trying to get into the hemp market because again that's the legal market in the united states right now mm-hmm. and that's that's I man that's some very and i appreciate you for dropping them gems because that's super informative and uh like, do you feel that, um, cause I hear some people say, cause we all know that, uh, like weed is not legal all over the country yet like that. So, but it probably is going to happen someday. And do you feel like it's going to be like, cause I see a lot of people say it's going to be like prohibition was in the twenties with cannabis. Do you feel the same way? Um, so yeah. So wait, so where are people, what do you, what is your interpretation of what people are saying about prohibition? They, they saying like, it's going to like, it's going to be like the next biggest industry. Like the biggest, like cannabis is going to be the biggest industry. Yeah, I, th- I definitely think it's going to be a, one of the biggest industries. Um, now, it's actually very similar to what happened in Prohibition. Okay. So just to give you an overview of what happened in Prohibition, 1920, they had the, I think it's the 18th Amendment. Yeah, it was the 18th Amendment. In 1920, they had the 18th Amendment that uh, prohibited the sale and manufacture of alcohol. I think for basically like, for... I don't even know how to explain it because it wasn't necessarily like at all. They had like a little carve out for pharmaceutical stuff. So uh, what ended happening in New York is that New York started, they basically shut down their bars and started opening pharmacies all over the place because you could still prescribe whiskey for like certain ailments like anxiety, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Why whiskey? Good idea for any of those things. Not my business, but that's what was going on. (laughs) And that was still legit. So, but they also had um, what was basically the Prohibition Act, uh, which actually called for the enforcement of the 18th Amendment. Um, 
and that so from 1920 to 1923 new york had prohibition but in 1923 um new york was like listen we've lost 70 percent of our revenues in terms of tax because that's where we got our money from is from liquor and now you basically took our revenue base away so new york said you know what in 1923 we're done with this we're going to run and, and it also was very violent just like as violent as the drug war the war on drugs is in our neighborhood in our community mm-hmm. so was prohibition prohibition that's where the gangsters and mobs came from mm-hmm. like so it was very violent so new york is like no no we've had enough of this we're not doing any of this so they stopped prohibition so new york was pretty much the first uh, the first state in the country to say no, we had it. We're not doing this. You know, I'm a holla. And then, but Maryland never actually enacted a state law to basically help enforcement of the Prohibition Act. And then, um, just to kind of bring it forward, in 1928, I think like either 28 states were just like, "Nah, we're good. We're not doing this anymore." And then the Depression hit. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was a function of. In 1933, they basically kind of pulled back a little bit, a little, and they said if a beer or out or wine is under point, it's I think 3.2 percent um, in alcohol by volume, then you can drink that, and that's that's okay, that's legal now. And then in, and then they also did the repeal, I think like right after that, maybe a couple of months later. But part of the reason why they did it is because of the Great Depression, they weren't getting the revenues off of alcohol, and the states were like, and the, and the government was like, yo, we can't continue this way because we've lost a major stream of revenue so i I give you that kind of uh background to say you see the same thing happen with the states now you know california 1996 was like no we're gonna allow people to use it if they're in pain and then Mm. um colorado and washington 2012 just like we don't care what you're doing we're going to make this legal and we're going to tax it and and you guys leave us alone, federal government. And that's essentially what happened in Prohibition back then. So I'm seeing a lot of parallels. And now we're looking at almost, I think, 30, I think somewhere close to 35 states that have legalized some form of marijuana. So it's looking very much like Prohibition. And I do think that if we get a recession or something like that, I think that's really going to push the needle to say we have a whole untaxed, untapped revenue source that we need to kind of flush money into our government. So again, I think it's looking very, very similar. Like it's very, very beginning to look very much like prohibition. Um, <laughs> and I'm kind of like, I think that's going to happen. So I, I, I feel like I've gotten away from the, the question. No, you good. Um, you good. You good. But I think that's what's going to, I think we're getting there. I think the states are going to push the way and the federal government is going to have to get down or lay down. That makes sense. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And uh, with you speaking on a recession again, uh, I want to ask, like, what would, like, because we all anticipate another one to happen. We don't know when, but we're pretty sure it's probably going to happen. It's going to happen eventually. What would be your advice to people? Because a lot of, like, people that's younger than, I would say, what, like, 27, 28, probably? They probably really don't really remember or really have the experience as a grown up, so what would what would your advice be to people regarding going to the next one? Things to look out for or be prepared for. So every recession, like, is, or different. you know, is by something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think general tools and rules is basically to stack your cash. Like, I think a lot of people, um, especially back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven, two thousand and six, everybody was getting a house and they were getting these super huge houses that they really couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so basically, they were house, were house poor. But I, I haven't really, I've seen a little bit of that now, but not in the same level that I did then. Because at the time, and this is what caused the recession of 2008, at the time, if you had a pulse, you could get a mortgage. <laughs> um, and that's what happened. People, a lot of people were getting, like I said, getting houses that they couldn't afford. And then the investment, the financial institutions like Merrill Lynch were then writing derivatives off of those, like basically bundling the mortgages together and then writing derivatives off of them. But when they started to default, then the, their investments started to fall apart. So again, I think, um, you know, being very careful about watching what's going on, keeping your cash together, um, not spending too much, but basically like rules for life. Like don't spend too much. Don't overspend <laughs> your pocket. Um, have some cash on hand because when the market does drop, that's when you make a lot of money. Like I said, it was like a perfect storm for my mom. The reason why she was able to retire with a lot of money in the bank and really have those assets available to her is because she was investing on a regular basis right through the crash. Not, you know, not necessarily like, oh, I'm investing through the cash, the crash. I'm doing this because I really know what I'm doing. I mean, she had me, but at the end of the day, we were just putting as much money in the market as we could because we know we had to. Um, and just, so again, and then also I feel like the fear factor gets in a lot of people's way. It's like, oh my gosh, the crash happened. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to, and everybody tries to find the bottom. Like everybody tries to find the top of the market. Everybody tries to find the bottom. Mm. You're just not going to find the bottom. So you just got to keep investing, you know, like you normally would, like don't change your habits. Mm. Like if you were investing a hundred dollars into the market, um, after the market crashes, continue to invest a hundred dollars into the market. Like the, do what you were doing before the market crash. Um, and I think those are the things. So establishing those habits early on to kind of push you through the hard time. I mean, it's like with life. You know, if you establish good habits, you know, on a good day and a bad day, you know, you still kind of do what you were doing, you know, on a good day, just like you were doing on a bad day. Right. So same thing. Do those habits, do the habitual things. Um, also have your cash up. You know, be careful about your spending. At this point, I would be really careful about um, spending, overspending on credit cards. Mm. Um, I mean, just basically trying to really get that debt under control. Because what happens is, is that at some point, uh, what credit card companies start to do is when they're starting to have like a credit crunch or kind of pull back on the economy, they think people are overextended and they start kind of pulling back on their limits. So I just be very careful about that because I had a friend of mine. She's like, every time I pay down my credit card, they they lower my limit. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but they think you're credit risk. So they feel basically the more open credit you have, the more ability you have to kind of run it up. And then it's a possibility they're not going to get paid because the credit company is not fooling around with we're not getting paid. They don't they don't like that. So. <laughs> Mm. So it, all of these things, like continuing to invest, keep getting your money up, having cash available, have cash on hand, and don't overextend yourself with credit cards. And just really pay attention to what's going mm -hmm. on. Because honestly, the market got really quiet when the market was crashing, if that makes sense. No, I'm like, had a lot of stuff going on. Um, there was a lot of banks failing. There was a lot of stuff going on. But the day the market actually crashed, it was relatively quiet, if that makes sense. So a lot of people are always looking for fanfare. Like the best deals are not made with a whole bunch of fanfare. <laughs> so if, if there's a whole bunch of fanfare, I usually go the other way. Hmm. Yeah, and, that, and and I and I often hear that. And I, and I like the fact that you said that pretty much stay consistent. Like if you invest in $100 in the market, it's good. Keep doing it when it's bad. Because I always, like they say, uh, it's better to be in the market than out the market. 
So yep. yep so that makes mm-hmm. so that makes perfect sense. And another thing uh, I've seen you speak on on Instagram is the rule of seventy two, and mm-hmm. I I love the way how you described it. And for the people who didn't see it or don't know what the rule of seventy two is, do you mind going over that? Sure, I can. So the rule of 72 is basically how long it take your money to double at a certain interest rate. And the reason why that even matters to, I mean, why that even matters is that a lot of people are going to look at like, oh, I, I have a savings account or, oh, I have a CD. And you're not going to get anything. You know, <laughs> from a savings account or a CD, you're just not. So the bigger thing is that you need to understand what that looks like. Um, how do I explain it? Like, what the, I guess what that looks like generally. Um, but also, as you start, like, going up in terms of the higher interest rates, you're going to see kind of like um, the rule starts becoming less accurate, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, like, the closer you get to, like, doubling your money, the rule starts kind of messing up a little bit. But it's really just a simple way to determine how long it's going to take for your money to double at that interest rate. So if I'm at, like, 1%, you know, it's going to take basically 72 years for my money to double. Or, you know, as it goes up, you know, it's going to get that time period is going to get smaller and smaller. But a lot of people, I think what happens is when they start 30% interest rates, for a year, like a stock goes up really, really high, they assume that they're going to keep getting 30% every single year. And that's usually not the way it works. Mm. See, that's very so, interesting. <laughs> now, you can, you, can, you can give one if you if I stop. Um, and, and the rule, like, basically, like, again, it's like everybody thinks everything happens. When we look at the market, we assume that the market's going to go up all the time. Right. But the rule take an account like what happens in a downturn like so my investment may go up 30 percent one year but what if it comes down and i lose 15 percent? i'm still up 15 but how do i account for that 30 you know like that missing that missing 15 so again the the rule is simple but it's not as dynamic as the market is so it kind of misses some things Mm, I, i like that and also uh do you mind? Because some people, because a lot of people always ask me, they don't even know where to start to become like a stock investor. They're like, how do I start? So, like a quick summary for you, what do you, what would you tell people? Like, what's a good starting point? How to, how can they start becoming a stock investor? So the first thing is invest in what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I really try to stay away from stock tips. People are like, oh, you should invest in this company. Like, right. no, no. <laughs> Like you need to understand it. So start there. And it's kind of like dating. So let me let me back up a little bit. So I say invest in what you know. Like if I see somebody, I mean, I'm, I'm engaged, so I don't do these things anymore. <laughs> if I see somebody who's attractive, I'm like, okay, I see you. But then I don't necessarily, I, based on what I see of them, um, I may, you know, we may not actually go out on a date. And even if I go out on a date, I may not, we may not actually get into a relationship. And every relationship that I'm in, I'm not going to marry the person. So it's kind of like steps to it. So I'm looking at this company like, okay, I really like, I love Starbucks. I'm like, oh yeah, I really love Starbucks. Starbucks is dope. I, I go there every day. I enjoy the experience. All right, cool. And then I'm like, okay, well, let me look at their numbers. Like, what what kind of numbers are you bringing in? I'm like, okay, your numbers look pretty good. Um, what's your stock price? Because, again, your numbers could look as good as they want in terms of revenue. But if your stock price is as high as Amazon, I'm not buying it. Right. <laughs> you know? so, so, again, it's like, okay, so I looked at you. I like you. I like what you're doing in the marketplace. 
and I'm cool. So I want to do some more research. Okay, I'm going to look to see if you actually are as good as you look. Are you as that good on paper? When I say on paper, I mean your your financials. Okay, so I like the way you look. Your financials look good. Okay, now I'm going to look at how much does the market value you? How expensive are you in the market? And if I think you're a good price in the market based on your financials and your market, like the view, the way I look at you in the marketplace, then I may invest. And then the next question is like, okay, I picked, I picked a company. I'm really ready to invest. So where do I do it and how much do I need? It's usually the next question that people ask. Yep. So I'd like to get people started as simple as I can. I really, really like Robinhood. Robinhood mm. is just easy peasy. It's just um, there's no what we call commissions, because normally when you're buying a stock, you're going to have to pay a commission. Um, but with Robinhood, it's commission-free. So it's just, easy, it's kind of like one less barrier to getting in. And then most of the stocks that we see on the street, like Starbucks, you know, Walmart, um, I would stay away from Sears because they're bankrupt. Yep. Um, <laughs> um, it's kind of like your regular everyday footlocker, all those companies that you may like know and love and whatever, they're available on start on um you can just kind of like look them up by their name but i do tell people all the time the biggest thing is i like people to get the what we call the ticker symbol for a company because there's so many companies out there there's over three thousand companies and a just a slight letter difference will get you a different company <laughs> yeah so you're you're thinking and that happens all the time with companies ipo there was a company i think zoom went public last week or week before last and there was a company that's like zoom something else it's zoom but the company is not zoom um i think communications or whatever it's called like the full name it was something else but people thought that 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 zoom was the company zoom that just ipo so that day that company stock shot up and for no other reason because people got it confused so again, like know what your ticker symbol is, know what you're really buying. Um, and the way you can do that, you can like Google it. Like if I Google Nike, um, I put in Nike stock in Google, N-K-E okay. will come up as a symbol and it will be in brackets. So understanding like what that looks like. Um, and that's pretty much it, you know, and kind of say, well, you know, I tell people don't invest more than you can afford to lose. Like if I have a coffee budget, my coffee budget is, I don't know, $25 a week. And I said, you know what? This week, I'm not going to invest. I'm not going to get coffee this week. So I'm going to use my coffee budget to invest. And and I think that's a good way to start. So again, you said like I'm going to forego this short term benefit for this long term gain or a potential long term gain. So I'm going to put that money that I would have tricked it somewhere else and put that into some stock or into a company. Okay. Yeah. So um, I noticed on your page that you have courses that you teach. So could you give us like an overview of some of the courses that you have? And then you specifically said that you teach women how to invest. So can you just let us know um, how that journey has been for you and what does it consist of? Because like I love to see women taking more control of their finances and being my, more di- diverse in the things they invest in. So can you just explain that to us? I do um, an investing marijuana class, and then I'm also doing a partnership with another woman who does investing. So she's going to do um, kind of, I'm doing like marijuana 201, and together we're going to do marijuana 201, which is basically how to trade cannabis stocks. So she's going to teach people how to trade, but also to do it with cannabis stocks. So we're going to do that um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I think I think for her session is June 5th, and I think mine is the week before. So we're going to do that in tandem. So that's the marijuana side. But then on the IPO side, 
I also teach um, three ways to invest in IPOs. And a lot of people, like I said, I talked about Zoom. I talked about Pinterest, Uber's um, IPOing next Friday. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the IPO market. So I'm teaching people, like, basically, like, people get very excited the day of that it goes mm-hmm. public. And I'm like, you got to stand down, stand mm-hmm. down, stand down. <laughs> Because <laughs> you can you can end up like lift lift is like down a lot, and, that, and that, that's funny that you it's said that. Because I was about to ask, I was about to that was about to move what I asked about IPOs. <laughs> So yeah, I teach a whole class on IPOs. It's actually like two and a half hours, but it's in modules, so people can kind of go back to the section that they may need to go back to or slow down or whatever. Because I like to make things really easily accessible and people learn at their own pace. Because I may, you may be able to kind of whisk through one thing, like one section, but the other section you might need to hear like three times. So I like doing things that way, so you can say, okay, I'm going to go back to this session and rewatch it, as opposed to rewatching the whole thing. Um, and then finally, talking about um, teaching women how to invest is that I've noticed that a lot of women to your point are really trying to you know take control of their money take control of their finances but they're like I really just don't know where to start and women are very much afraid of making a mistake um but also women like no shade but women are actually better investors over the long term mm-hmm. because a lot more methodical. <laughs> I promise there's like a whole bunch of research about it Right, y'all coming at me. I mean, <laughs> I be telling him this all the time. They they tend to be a lot more methodical in their thought process now. But I think a woman, um, you know, when I'm I'm with my fiance and we talk, like he's like, all right, let's do it, let's do it. I'm like, oh, hey, 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 like slow down. Mm-hmm. But he has really good ideas. So when we get together, we're like an amazing force. So I don't want you to think like, oh, you know, women are better investors or what, like we are. But I think there's a lot that men bring to the table. And once we get together, especially as we unify the black family, having these conversations and kind of using each one of our strength, playing off of that really allows us to be a very good investing household. Mm. Um, so that's my big joy about investing with women because I feel like they they tend to be a lot more methodical. My my learn my teaching style kind of really lends to women, and women were actually like my first clients. Like my girlfriends were reaching out to me when I was doing when I first started the IV Investor, and they had questions. Now after my girlfriends reached out to me, my guy friends were like, "So I heard you were talking about." <laughs> you you know send me that blog or can you explain that to me so they weren't really so upfront and forward to say hey i have no idea what i'm doing can you help me they were kind of like hey could you fill me in on this and they were just a little bit different but even still like women were pretty much the proponent of my brand mm. and, and something that you said that i really love which you, you said real quick was a uh, unifying a, a black family so the question I want to ask is, and I, I ask every guest we have, I always ask the guests this, and I ask, so do you feel you have an obligation to the community as far as, like, what you're doing? Not, not even just a monetary terms, like giving money back, but like what you're doing, you're giving out valuable information. Do you feel like that's something that you have to do? Oh, most definitely. I, especially coming from the industry that I came from. So a lot of people don't realize this, but the financial industry is highly regulated. So... I don't have my licenses. Like, so basically when I stopped um, working as a stockbroker, I had two years to either connect with a broker or basically lose my license. Mm. And I decided not to connect with a broker because that's kind of when the IV investor was birthed. But if I would have kept my license and stayed with a broker, there's a lot of stuff that I couldn't do or say in public because of the regulations. 
So, but again, if there's maybe, maybe two or 3% of financial advisors or people in finance are people, are black people, then how many times are you having this conversation around the dinner table? You're just not. So again, I feel like it's an obligation. I have a responsibility if I have this knowledge for me to share it, because the problem is, is that the people who have the most knowledge and the most experience don't have the opportunity to really talk about these things in public in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. and a way that very uh, fluent. So then what happens is you have these kind of, I don't want to call them charlatans because that's not fair. Because you have <laughs> like really bad information and there's not a good way to check against it because the people, like I said, who have the knowledge can't really say anything. Right. So again, like I said, like that's why I feel like I have an obligation because I'm not you know, bound by a broker. I'm not kind of bound to the things that I can say and can't recommend or have a conversation. So I have a lot more freedom and with more freedom, I believe comes more responsibility. Mm, I, I, I love that. Uh, I definitely love that. And do you feel like, I, got, I only got a couple more questions. I know we, <laughs> this been love it. but do you feel, <laughs> okay. Do you feel like there is a, a shift in the, I love asking this question too, by the way, but do you feel like there is a shift in the culture happening as far as, us being literate as far as finances and like even like on the healthy tip, just everything. Do you feel like there's a shift happening? Um, yeah, I definitely feel like there's a shift happening. I think the shift happening is a function of us seeing stuff not working. Like, so, you know, when we were growing up, we were told, oh, go to college, get a good job, you know, retire, get a house, you know, have some kids and you'll you'll be fine. Like, that was what we were basically told. Mm. So now we're out in the world and we're like, well, wait, wait a second. Hold on now. <laughs> Not what you told me was going. And now I feel like, you know, I got robbed. Yeah. Um, so I think, like, on, on that end, we're like, okay, so what can I do to change this narrative for me? And I think also... Um, also it's just like how, like, I think sometimes it goes from like, how do I make ends meet or how to, and then it goes into like, okay, how can I thrive? So it's about moving from thriving, like to just kind of making ends meet or just kind of maintaining to thriving. Mm-hmm. And I think we are in a place in our, in our lives that we're saying like, no, I think we have the opportunity to thrive or I think I have the ability to thrive. I just have to get there. So I think that's the shift that everybody's having. It's kind of like, yo, you played me with all that stuff you were feeding me for the last 20 plus years. You played me. Mm. I got played my bad, you know, mm-hmm. you know, especially our bad because I was telling my dad a couple of years ago, we had like a really deep conversation. And that's a, one thing I really appreciate is that I can have really deep conversations about money, about, you know, about not just politics, but just kind of like a societal issue, social economic issues with my parents and my family. We're able to have these conversations. Um, but we were having a conversation. I was like, well, daddy, what if we got this whole thing wrong? Like, what if we just, and this, like, this is like early Ivy investors, so like maybe three years in, maybe like two years in, I was like, daddy, what if we got it wrong? Like, what if the, what we were telling everybody just was not quite right. Because when we look at the people who were very successful, when we look at, um, you know, uh, Bill Gates, we look at all these these people who basically dropped out of college. They were just like, well, I'm good. And it wasn't necessarily, oh, I'm good, I can't afford it. But it was like, you know what? I'm good off of you. I have other things to do than just do this. And I was kind of like, you know, those are the people that I'm looking at. And 
um, I was like, I, not that we necessarily, we, we kind of admire them. We're like, wow, this person, you know, didn't do what I did to kind of, I was trying to get to where Bill Gates was, but I felt like I had to go this way. Mm. And now, like, I see that and I think people are starting to see, like, I can pretty much create my path. And I think people are embracing that on the financial side. Like, I can do what I want to do. I just have to do it in a certain way. Like, there's a quote that says, I can get what I want if I help enough people get what they want. Mm. Like, we're, a lot of people are just kind of basically taking their goods and services to the market because they feel like in the market that they're in at their jobs, they're not getting compensated well. So I think that's one thing. But on the health, on the health side, I think a lot of people are starting to get scared. I think a lot of people are saying, like, when we look at John Singleton, when we look at um, Fife, when we look at kind of people that we looked up to and they're kind of leaving this world early, we're like, whoa, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You know, there's something we're doing wrong. So maybe we should do this better. And I think, you know, also we got lazy. And mm-hmm. I can tell you by, by being lazy, like I can tell you like, oh, my knees hurt. Like I shouldn't, I'm not old, but my knees hurt. Like, oh, okay, I need to lose weight. Or, you know, um, I'm not sleeping, but I can tell that the quality like of my next day that I didn't sleep well. Um, because I was up late working or whatever the case may be, I can tell you that I'm dragging the next day. I can tell you that my quality of work was not as good. So it's again, I think we're very, a lot of us are getting very much in tune to not only our surroundings, but what we're doing, um, like how our day to day or our habits really affect our lives. Like I can tell you when I exercise, I'm in a way better mood. Like I'm less snappy at work and they're like, Oh, did you go sitting this morning? I was like, how did you know? And they're like, you didn't snap my and it's not that I have people's head off, but it's like I'm a lot less patient when I don't actually engage in what we call self care. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That make that make that make a lot of sense, and I love and I agree with everything you're saying. I feel like it is a from at least in my circle and from what I'm seeing, I feel like there is a change to having more conversations right about ownership, financial independence. And things such as that, and I and I love it. And like I love it as opposed to just you know pop culture. I know that was a lot of what I seen growing up, and it was like always like, man, this ain't like why we care so much about this. It's not really affecting our lives like that. So I I really love what's going on, and and I love what you're doing. And uh, something else I want to ask was going back to the stocks was IPOs, because I know like you said a lot of people get excited when when it's a, like a new new a new thing comes on the market a lot of people get excited that first day but do you feel like do you feel like there's ever a time where you should invest like the day of or should you always wait a couple of weeks or a couple of months to to re- to see the real evaluation not the inflated stuff <laughs> Uh, I feel like that's a trick question. That's a trick question. <laughs> like, like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like the rear view is way bigger. So, for example, everybody was really, really hyped about Pinterest, and actually, the gym was Zoom. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things about Zoom, and I like, I was paying attention to Zoom, and I like let it go off my radar, is that Zoom was profitable, and Pinterest was not. Pinterest was the sexier, like, um, they were the sexier company at the mm-hmm. time. Because they had the cachet, but Zoom, I mean, I use Zoom on a regular basis. I love it. Mm -hmm. And they're profitable. And so I think, um, you know, I think they dropped like 72% or something. They've gone something crazy through the roof. And so your question is like, if people are like, yo, I should have invested in Zoom on that day. And it's like, uh, I mean, you could (laughs) have, (laughs) but it's 
still a lot of hype on those first couple of days. I tell people at least wait 30 days or at mm-hmm. least wait um, until you get some analyst coverage. Mm-hmm. So the analysts actually say like it's a buy or a sell or whatever. Um, also look to see what every, what everybody else is doing in the market. Um, because it tells you what the, um, it tells you kind of what this, the market sentiment is, but after the market cools off, you actually like, to your point, you get a better view of what's going on and what's, mm-hmm. what people think of the company. So I tell people, look at until after the lockup period, the lockup period is a time period where a lot of major shareholders cannot sell their stock. Um, and it, it's usually about six months. I think Snapchat was uh, short of six months. I think Snapchat was like five months. Um, their lockup period was like 150 instead of 180. Um, but again, everybody's watching what happens on that day of the lockup to see what the insiders do, because that tells you a lot about the company. Like if all your insiders are dumping their stock on mm-hmm. that day. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you dumping your stock? What's good? <laughs> What do you know? Because they do know something. They can't necessarily trade on all their insider knowledge because that's actually a violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. But they, um, but they, they know what's going on with the company, even if it's not necessarily the financials. They know, like, hey, you know, I don't think this company is worth that. So I tell people at least wait to see what the people in the company are doing. That's going to give you a really good indication. And you may miss out on a better price, even if you do that. They might say, oh, all these people dropped their stock and it only went down $3 a share. But if I got in like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I could have gotten like, you know, a $5 share less than now. Like, yeah, you could have, but you it also could go the opposite way. So everybody kind of plays it like, oh, I could have, could should have, would have, could have. But nobody talks about it like, oof, whew, I missed that, not, that nightmare. Like nobody ever really talks about it like that. They're like, oh, I missed it. And again, I think we have to be very careful about treating the stock market like the lottery or gambling because it's not mm-hmm. like you get educated investor. And being an educated investor, sometimes you have to kind of take your time. There's a quote that says the stock market transfers money from the from the patient, from the inpatient to the patient. Yeah, the patient so again, you gotta be patient. You gotta watch and wait and see. And like, and honestly, I tell people I don't really watch a lot of TV. And it's not like, oh, I'm so great, I don't watch a lot of TV. Back in the day, um, when I first graduated from um, college, I like had a, a really high Comcast bill. They wouldn't give us cable, so that's <laughs> and I like I kind of started to live without it. And I did watch a little bit during um, during law school, but it was expensive for a student. So I was like, I'm not paying. So I pay for internet, but it was so basically it came out of like kind of necessity that I didn't have it. And I got used to it. But I just read the news. I mean, it's like if you read business news about companies that are going on, like it's like watching the young and the restless, like all that stuff that happened with Uber a couple of years ago, like that was dramatic, you know, <laughs> so take that information and go with it. So I think, again, um, I really look at the lockup period. I really look to see what everybody else is doing. I think, yeah, you probably could miss out on a really good opportunity like with Zoom. But again, um, I just, I just don't, I don't want to gamble that way. And that's me. Now, some people will maybe do options or do some calls and some puts. And I think there's some kind of like more of a strategic play that you can make. But I don't know if I would necessarily do a buy and hold uh, before that lockup period is, um, happens, mm. which is like six Mm, I love the answer, and I love the fact that you answered two of my questions with one. Because my next question was going to be lockup <laughs> period, and you went straight into it. So I'm like, oh, this is perfect. So, <laughs> so I only I only have one more question for I don't know you got you got more. So the, my last question I had was we talked about how to get started investing into the market, 
But my now I want to ask is what are what do you think are the three main things to being successful in the market? Um, having available cash. Okay. Um, um, basically doing your research and being patient. Mm, that's what I always say. <laughs> so I mean, well, great. Well, first of all, great buy stick alike. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like. Take if you really master those things, because I will never forget. I was so saucy when Brexit happened. When Great Britain said they were leaving um, the European Union, they mm-hmm. called it Brexit. It happened in like 2016, and I remember I didn't have a whole bunch of cash bill. The stock market went crazy. Everything was down. You know, you would have thought that it was like the next coming of the Great Depression. It was so crazy, <laughs> but stocks were cheap as all get. I got Apple at like ninety two dollars a share. Mm. I got Sprint. I got Sprint super cheap, and I got another company. I think it was like Microsystems or something. Super super cheap, and I doubled my money in all of them, just because. I, but I was salty because I didn't have enough mm. to really get as shares of Apple as I wanted. You know, I was like, "Dang, had I had more money, I would have really been able to take advantage of it." But I was like, you know what? That's my bad. I didn't have available uh, enough cash to really take advantage of swings in the market. Like anything, the market is so volatile, especially when it's really, really high, that you can sneeze. Like the wrong person can sneeze and all of a sudden the market's down. Like for real? <laughs> so again, that's, But that's a good time to take advantage of the market and kind of take advantage of, I guess, cheaper pricing. So again, I mean, but again, that's why you got to be patient. You got to have this cash on hand. You have to have your research. So when I had my watch list, I'm like, okay, let's go. Oh, y'all cutting up today in the market? Let me see how, <laughs> how my stock is today. Oh, it's not. Let's go. I'm going you know, to do a purchase. So it just really depends on what's going on. But I think those are the key elements to really be successful. And that's over the long term. Over the long term. I, I love that as well. And that's, that's something I always say. Like, when people actually always say, and some people might think like, man, it's just cliche because I always say the three main things to me is doing your research, uh, staying patient, and what was my last one? I don't remember my last one. I always say consistency. I always say stay consistent, keep putting money into it, be consistent yep. doing it. So those are my main things. And I and this is my last question. I, I know, but I just man, it just came to my head. And also, it, uh, this is my last one because people always hit me up and they always ask me this. They say, when is a good time? When do you know is a good time to sell your stock? So, in your opinion, what is your uh, what is your thoughts on that? So, the biggest thing I hold stocks forever. Like, so mm. I want to really clear like about that. that. I like that. Pretty holding them forever. But listen, every so often, a stock, will, a company, and because remember, you're buying a company, you're owner of a company, mm. and every so often, a company like, Ooh, what are you doing? Oh no, baby, what is you doing? <laughs> and that happened with GE. I don't know if you caught a couple. Maybe it was like last year. Mm. They started having problems. Like about two years ago, I want to say, to me as an investor, I started seeing that they were having problems. So I was like, um, GE, what's going on? I kind of just like, I just now, like once I started seeing some things that I didn't like, and offhand, I can't remember what they were, but I was like, uh, GE, you're not really performing the way I want you to. They were still giving the dividends. They were still doing everything they were supposed to, but there's something I can't remember, and I'm so sorry I can't remember, but mm-hmm. something happened to make me go, oof. That doesn't seem good and ends up and I didn't like the way their management was performing. And I said, you know what? I think you guys are going in the wrong, in the wrong direction and the direction that I don't like as an investor. Let me take my ball and go home. So I took my ball and I went home. You know, I was still up in my position. I was fine. But 
I was just like, I don't like what you're doing. Now, you know, fast forward, GE actually took a huge hit because they um, they had to reduce their dividend and their share price went down significantly because of that. And partially because their business just wasn't doing as well as it used to. So again, I kind of caught that early on. So if you, I, I give you that whole um, scenario or the example to say, if you see something going on in the business that um, that you don't quite get or understand, and it doesn't seem to make sense based on what you know about your business, and that's why it's so important for you to do your research up front. So like basically, if Burger King all of a sudden starts to say, I'm trying because Burger King's doing a lot that I don't know if they should be doing, but whatever. <laughs> so Burger King, Burger King said, oh, we're going to start selling um, toys. They're not going to be Happy Meals or whatever the meals for kids. They're going to be like regular toys that we're selling. We're going to make make a toy store in Burger King. And you're like, wait a second, wait a second, player. But why are you doing that? So like the equivalent of Burger King creating a toy store in their in their um their establishment is kind of like what I look at when companies are doing stuff that I don't think makes sense. So I'm always looking for that. It's not like I'm paying attention to the stock market every day. Like, did my stock go up? Did my stock go down? I don't do that. But I mm, do pay right. attention. To, I do kind of keep my ear open to hear if any of my companies are kind of cutting up or acting up or being strange. Mm, you know, um, you, could go on. you keep going. No, I, I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, are you guys being strange? Um, are you kind of getting outside of where I'm with you? Um, like, where, like where I'm hanging with you? Like, I'm like, you know, it's it's kind of like if McDonald's kind of did something very similar, I would say, okay, McDonald's. I don't necessarily agree with what you're doing, but I see what you're doing because you have a very big kick market. Um, so it kind of makes like, is it an, a line extension that makes sense, or is it a line extension that just doesn't make any sense? And you're trying to get in because it's hot. Like Carl Jr., I think they said they're coming up with like a cannabis burger. Mm. Why are you doing that? Do y'all did y'all do that before? Like, what do you like? You know. So I'm yeah. looking at it, like I was an investor. I'm like, well, you know, have you guys thought about this? Have you really process this through have you like run it through the fda like have they approved this like what's going on because once you start adding stuff like that to your your food you open yourself up to a really big set of liabilities that you may not have calculated because you're trying to get onto a trend so just mm-hmm. if you're doing stuff that's weird that's what i get out of a company that's that's- yeah, and that's and that's it's really interesting that you said you never plan on selling because i feel the exact same way and i say the same i say the same thing all the time but for like, so some people might say to that, they're like, hold on. So you never plan on selling. So what's like, what's your point? And that shows that you're really, really a long-term thinker because you're not thinking about like, you know, really benefiting from that money. You plan on keeping it. So, but to people that would think like, ask you like, so what's your point? What's your point of buying it if you never plan on selling it? What do you say to people that think like that? Enforcement. 
But immigration and customs enforcement didn't say a word. You're like, you know, so if you know anything about government, you know, they come out at the same time. And, like, they make a joint statement or they come out right after each other. Like, they're really, like, closing time. So I was like, wait a second. Why are they not saying anything? Why are they, like, radio silent? That's weird. Right. And I was like, wait a second. It's not weird. Y'all have no intentions of changing what y'all doing, Ice. That's what <laughs> I said, okay, I see you. But I knew that. And as an investor, I said, I'm not down with this private prison thing. Y'all can go ahead. But I know and I see an opportunity. I know an opportunity when I see it. So what I did is I got in and I doubled my money in like a couple of months and I got out. I just knew the opportunity. Unfortunately, as soon as President Trump was elected, that's when it really like it went up seven dollars a day in a day, like per share. And I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, I was lost. But either way, like that's kind of the market vision that that would be an industry that was going to thrive under this new president. But I didn't really kind of think of it that far ahead. But I knew that it was just an artificial drop because the main proponent of the numbers, like of their revenue, wasn't basically was still going to stay with them. And the DOJ was more or less like a like a symbolic kind of gesture, although they did use them to a certain extent. It wasn't as heavy as ICE was. Mm, wow. <laughs> and you you just gave a lot, a lot, a lot of game, a lot of gems. And these are... I, I was particularly want to ask questions that people always ask. Like people always ask me typically the same questions. So I'm like, now, oh, we get a lot of listeners. I'm like, now nah, you ain't got no excuses to ask me these same questions no more. <laughs> she then went over all. She went over all this stuff, like pretty much everything. And uh, I just wanted to say before we wrap up, like I really appreciate you coming on, to, like taking out the time to come on the show and spit these gems because you didn't have to do it, and we really, really, really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. This was this was very very fun. And but before we let you go, uh, do you mind letting the people know like where can they find you? If they they like everything you're saying. They want to take uh, some of your courses with anything. Where can they find you? Sure. So I hang out the most on Instagram. So you can find me at the Ivy Investor. So that's T H E I V Y Investor. Um, also, you find me at the Ivy Investor on Facebook. Um, same thing. Um, I'm on Twitter. Don't really tweet that much. Don't judge me. I just don't have that much to say. <laughs> um, but also my website, so www.theivyinvestor.com is my website. www.theivyinvestor.com. Okay. That's where my website and that's where the courses are. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, and you can also find courses on my Instagram and my link. So there's a, those are there too. Okay, okay. Well, cool. So everybody that's uh, listening, Please definitely check out all those things she said on her, her Instagram, her website, all those things. And if you got any questions, feel free to reach out to her, like she said. And, but like like we said, we appreciate you for coming on, taking the time to do this. And we definitely going to have to do this again in like another, uh, what, like six months or something? Because I know you have a whole bunch of new things that you can <laughs> doing that you can talk about as well. Okay, that sounds good. Thank you again for having me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thank talk- you. Well, that was another episode of the Millionaire Mindsets Podcast with the Ivy Investor. You, uh, Like she said, you guys can reach out to her on Instagram at uh, Ivy Investor, I-V-Y Investor. And for you, for, for, for the people, I'm stuttering this shit down. For the people who don't know, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Xavier C. Miller. Snapchat, Xavier Miller 312. And uh, Deanna, she's going to give you her information so you guys could 
reach out to her as well. And um, you can find me on Instagram at Deanna Kent. Twitter is Deanna S. Kent. And Facebook is Deanna Kent. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Millionaire Mindset's daily text subscription. You could do so by texting at that sign M Mindset A1010. Again, that is at that sign M Mindset A1010. And you can start receiving our daily text messages. And don't forget to go ahead and rate the podcast, leave a review, comment, do what you got to do. We appreciate all the feedback. Yep, and that's pretty much it. Thank you guys for tuning into another episode. We see you guys next episode. Peace. On the way to the big check. You ain't know I'm up next when I'm on the way. You ain't take a risk because you're too afraid. I'ma just eat till I'm overweight. On the way. Oh, a lot of shit on the way. On the way. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.